Hey everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Lethal Podcast. Today we were joined by Bill Vanderheiden, who is the owner, founder, and lead engineer for Iron Will Outfitters. Um, <laughs> this one digs deep, guys. Uh, get a pen and paper. We take a pretty deep technical dive into steels and heat treatments, mechanical design work, R&D. Uh, it's basically a nerd fest. Um, and as a matter of fact, it was such a nerd fest that we ended up recording over three hours. And the second half has some really important stuff we didn't want people to gloss over and miss on the second half of the podcast. So I made it into two parts. In this episode, we really dig deep into the products that Bill has designed for Iron Will and his background on making that possible. And in the next episode, we take an even deeper dive on the physics behind aero penetration. Uh, I'm just going to leave it at that, but you're definitely going to want to listen to that one as well next week, so stay tuned. Um, as always, this podcast is fueled by Hunter's Blend Coffee. Go to huntersblendcoffee.com and get yourself a delicious cup of joe. I've been burning the candle at both ends. It's definitely been a pick me a good pick-me-up in the morning as well as my go-to at night to keep me going. Uh, so when you check out at huntersblendcoffee.com, be sure to use code ABF, use all caps, and 10% of your purchase will be donated to the Ashby Bowhunting Foundation, and we know how much we love the guys over at the ABF. Um, if you guys like the content of the podcast, please feel free to drop us a quick review on iTunes. We really appreciate it and helps us get some more exposure. Uh, we also have some merch on the website. It's really dope. Uh, when you guys buy stuff uh, from there, it helps us keep this thing going. Because uh, believe me when I say that hosting websites and buying software for this uh, isn't the cheapest. So we uh, we greatly appreciate you guys doing that. So without any further delay, here is Bill Vanderheiden from Iron Will Outfitters. Enjoy. <laughs> Uh, so did you, uh, Bill, did you hunt anything, uh, this spring? Like what, what, uh, what hunting trips did you go on? Well, I was supposed to go bear hunting in, in Canada, but that got, that got shut down. I did make uh. Uh, one. <clears throat> yeah, I did go to Texas, um, around the first of February and hunted Audad with, uh, with Aaron Snyder. That was, oh, uh, cool. oh, nice. that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Was that a top <clears throat> of Texas? It was. Yep. Okay. All right. And that was, I'd never seen an odd ad before going on that hunt. So it was, it was a cool experience. I really enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. Um, got like seven or eight stocks before I um, finally got a good opportunity to, to shoot one. And so over two days, so there was all kinds of action there. Oh, wow. Yeah, nice. That does sound like some good action. Yeah. I've heard out ad are like bigger than, than you think that they might be, but maybe that's coming from a Midwest guy who doesn't know how big they're supposed to be. You know, I had never seen one, so I had no idea how big they were. But <laughs> the the Rams, the old Rams, are big. I mean, the you know the 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 U's, I guess, um, mm-hmm. aren't you know they're like um, a deer, or maybe not quite as tall as a deer. But uh, right, some of those Rams are fifty percent taller than that, and with big big horns and you know, wow. big animals. So yeah, yeah. They're pretty cool. I've I've heard they're a really good animal. The to test stuff on they're they're pretty they've got a decent a decent hide on them and they're they're just resilient animals so that's uh gary you've got you've got out at out in oregon don't you yeah but we don't talk about them much because we don't want oh. people looking for them yeah that's that's fair that's fair <laughs> way <laughs> maybe, way to ruin the secret yeah, Matt. yeah maybe I'll, I'll i'll edit i'll edit that part out i'll i'll, I'll, uh, I'll we'll just forget uh, that i mean part of the, the people that know that they're here know where they are so it's not mm-hmm. that big of a deal but yeah, we have yeah. some, and they are much bigger than you'd think. Like, because they hang out 
the first time, well, a couple of first times I saw them, they were hanging out near Bighorns, and they're like the Rams are every bit as big as a Bighorn body wise. Really? At least the ones that I was looking at, they're big. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I saw some I just, that would have been bigger than Bighorn Rams I've seen for yeah. sure. That's crazy. When I just when I think of like a sheep like that, I, I think of the like the one time I've been to Texas and saw, you know, some you know black Hawaiians and you know stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. And you know that they, they weren't very big, so that's in my head. That's what I expect them to be. And then I think I saw Cody and Aaron and, and probably you, Bill, post some pictures with them. And I was like, those things are way bigger than I thought. So. Yeah, I expected them to be the size of a goat, and then you see them near something else that you know how big that thing is. You're like, oh, oh, yeah. I don't, I don't want to pack that off of that spot. <laughs> 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 that's, that's a sketchy area to have that much weight. Yeah, no kidding. Don't lose your footing. But yeah, it was well, a fun cool. place to hunt them because the the terrain was great for spot and stock. There's just enough mesquite trees and uh, and I guess cedar trees, um, you know, smaller evergreens to where you could you could put a good stock on them. So it was a fun trip. And nice. then I also went to, uh, went to he- Texas. Um, Blake Hunter is a friend down there. He had yeah. me down for a, for a hog hunt. And, uh, mm-hmm. that was, that was a blast. Um, we did, this was spot and stock hog hunting also, um, where we'd start, you know, a, a couple hours before dark and then, you know, go right into the, it was a full moon. So we were hunting them after dark, which, um, nice. I mean, it almost felt, illegal from, you know, growing up in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that's really frowned upon anywhere else I've been, but when you're, when you're hog hunting and we, and the guy that owned the ranch let us on, I mean, he wanted us to shoot as many hogs as we could. And he didn't really want rifle hunters on there because oh, we had yeah. enough cattle, enough cattle perfect. around. So it was, it was perfect. Four of us yeah. had our bows and we had, you know, lighted knocks and lighted sights and, uh, did some spot and stock in a full moon. It was, it was a, it was a lot of fun. Ooh. did you use any of the like i've seen those stabilizers that have like the red lights on the end of them did or did anyone have anything like that make it easier to see in the in the moonlight yeah you know i'm not i'm not that advanced yet on my night hunting so (laughs) i didn't have the (laughs) the right neither have the right lighting myself um so i like walk in the dark but yeah a couple of the guys had those red lights um either on the stabilizer or just carrying them along and they'd pop those on and yeah, it uh, seems like, you know, I was always kind of skeptical, like, do animals really see the red lights or not? But um, it seemed like not. It seemed like yeah. uh, we could get away with that. Yeah, well, I know it's definitely, it's supposed to be harder to pick up at distance because I, when I was in the army, they issued these little, like, we call them ranger lights and they'd have different lenses and they always made us use red. Uh, and I don't, I don't. I mean, they said it was harder to see at distance. Like if you're right on top of it, obviously it doesn't make a huge difference, but yeah, I don't know. That's pretty, that's pretty wild. We, uh, Rob and I got to hunt some pigs at night, but we didn't have bows. We had knives. So we had knives. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) That was, uh, and dogs and dogs. We weren't just running around in loincloths. We we had dogs. So, uh, it got, uh, it got pretty exciting. It got pretty exciting a couple of times that we'd have a big group of pigs and we'd be moving in on them and, if there's enough of them moving, they cover up the sound of us moving. Um, mm. you know, it's really, it's mm-hmm. really hard to sneak on one, but sneaking on like 20 isn't so bad. And, sure. um, but sometimes we'd get a shot and then we didn't realize, but we'd have them pinned up against a river or some other cover. So the only way to run was our way. You know, a few exciting jumps and stuff like that. So, 
But yeah, it was a good. It's awesome. Yeah, Cody said it was a good time. That's uh, that sounds like fun. Well, cool. Well, uh, for those who haven't figured out yet, we are hanging out with Bill. I'm. I hope I'm going to say it right. Is it Vander Hayden? Vander Hayden. Yeah, not Vander Hayden. Hayden. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Hayden. Is it? Is I'm. I'm. A, I'm going to make a wild assumption that that's German of some sort. It's Dutch, actually. Yeah. Dutch. Dutch. Okay. All right. All <laughs> means right. like right. means like of the of the heather or of the field. I guess so. Yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Th- there's there's a lot of Hollanders and Dutch around here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, up in up in Wisconsin, there's a yep. there's a bunch yep, of the whole Wisconsin, uh, Iowa area. Yep. Illinois, yeah, for sure. That's cool. I, I'm well, pretty sure I know like 15 different Vander somethings. <laughs> yep. People ask me, "Do you know a Vander Hayden from Green Bay?" And I'm like, "No, there's, there's a few of them." <laughs> it's like the Smith of Wisconsin. Oh yeah, that's fun. That's funny. Uh, well, uh, Bill, I appreciate you coming on, hanging out with us. Bill is the, uh, owner, founder, and lead engineer, uh, for Iron Will Outfitters. Uh, um, you guys make broadheads and insert systems and, uh, uh all sorts of cool stuff that we're going to get to chat about tonight. But before we, before we jump into, uh, into the company and all the products and stuff, tell us, tell us about yourself. I don't, I know about the, you know, you grew up in Wisconsin and now you don't live there, but that's, that's about all I know. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in Wisconsin, um, from kind of a long line of hunters and fishermen. You know, my, uh, my grandfather bow hunted, um, and he gun hunted, um, bird hunted yeah. as well. And, uh, my dad exclusively bow hunted. He was always, always used traditional bow. And, uh, I'd been shooting a bow from the time I was four and I go. started traditional. Um, I shot traditional up until I started hunting traditional, you know, with the, with the Ben Pearson recurve when I was 12 yeah. and I flung arrows at lots of deer, um, for two years until I could afford a, <laughs> until I could afford a compound bow. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I started shooting a compound at 14 and, and started killing some stuff then. And I've really shot a compound ever since. I mean, I still have my old recurve and I've shot a few of them and I pick them up. They're fun to shoot, but I've really focused on, uh, compounds for my hunting. Sure. There's nothing then. wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But, oh, yeah. um, yeah, so. I grew up in Wisconsin. I went to University of Wisconsin in Madison for mechanical engineering. Um, worked in the Minnesota kind of area for um, about eight years, and then moved on to Colorado about twenty years ago. Now, there you go. Okay, yeah. How's that? So how's my, that been being out in God's country? You know, I got here as soon as I could, but it, it took me a while. It's it's. <laughs> Yeah. I like Colorado. Um, I do like the mountains. Um, you know, I do miss, I miss the lakes and the, and the Oak, Oak woods and things like that. Um, yeah, Wisconsin yeah. for sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, I do love the mountains and, and mountain hunting. And, you know, I was, um, I was crazy about whitetail hunting, you know, throughout my teen years and, and early college years. And then, <clears throat> but once I moved out here and started elk hunting and mule deer hunting, um, that really kind of took my focus there. And, and now I, I, now I enjoy all of it. I've got a little more, you know, time, um, that I do the white, I enjoy the whitetail hunting too, but really elk yeah. hunting, elk hunting really became a passion of mine big time when I moved out here 20 years ago. Yeah. So similar story to, uh, Garrett, uh, moved from Ohio and now you, now you're a elk addict per se. Yeah. It's it's a much better place to be. I don't how know. long uh, how long have you been out there, Garrett? Uh, I moved out here in 2015, so almost five years. Moved out here October okay. 2015. 
Okay. Yeah. I, but, I struggled. I struggled in the early years. Like everything I knew from bow hunting whitetails. Um, it's really that it was really kind of the only big game animal I knew. So I th- expected everything to act like a whitetail. And um, <laughs> right. It took it's a rough, me quite a few. It's a rough curve. <laughs> it, it was. It was rough. Um, it, 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 I'm successful now. I mean, the last five, six years, I've, I've shot a, um, a nice elk on public land over the counter each year and, um, you know, fill most of my tags, but there was a struggle there for, I ate a lot of tag soup in those early years moving out here for yeah, sure. Yeah. Lucky for me, like, so I work with a bunch of guys that have, you know, hunted elk their whole life. Um, but, uh, my buddy, Dave, my hunting buddy, Dave, I mean, he's been, he guided for, I want to say 10 plus years, but I don't remember exactly. So a while he shortened my learning curve greatly because like I went one year by myself and I only went out a few times. I heard a bugle and then I was super jazzed just cause I heard a bugle. Uh, but then that next year, you know, he kind of took me under his wing and like I killed a bull that year, which I shouldn't have because I screwed up on the first one that I shot at, but you know, got the, I ended up killing one and then had a really bad year the next year. I think I missed four bulls, but I'm, I've found a way to get close to them, but hitting them has been interesting for whatever reason. Well, you cut the, you're really lucky. You kind of cut out the first stage, which when I moved out here, I thought, I just figured everybody hunted. Um, yeah. I, you know, growing up in, in central Wisconsin, everybody I knew. Everyone well, hunted. Everybody. Yeah. Hunted. yeah. Right. There's two religions. There's really kind of two religions in Wisconsin. It's Green Bay Packers and deer hunting and everybody, you know, does. Absolutely. It. What's really so, funny. Uh, well, yeah. okay. I'm going to cut you off real quick. Bill, are you a Packers fan? I am a Packers fan. Yeah. Yes. We've got the, we've got all four. It makes zero oh, yeah. sense, but myself and Garrett, not from Wisconsin, are Packers fans as well. And then obviously, Robin, <laughs> nice. so, so it's just uh, a good the, fit. Yeah. It, yeah. That's, <laughs> it, it, it is during football season you, before, you really before can't, and after uh, recording. You can't really can't avoid it if you live there. I think there's like, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I used to, yeah. I used to go up to Wisconsin every year for my, uh, for my annual training for the military. And I'd always stock up on my Green Bay gear while I was there. It, it was so weird just going into Walmart and it's just like, everywhere. Like everything you get ev- everywhere. It's everywhere. You couldn't escape yeah. the Green Bay Packers. And I, and I was in like, southwest wisconsin like literally just on the other side of the state line and people were diehard packers over there it was funny anyway continue uh uh colorado <laughs> and uh you uh that couple of the rough years on, on the yeah on the front so end, sounds like <clears throat> i first moved out to uh, work work for a startup company in boulder and i knew knew nothing about boulder but i figured hey these guys must must <laughs> oh, geez <laughs> these guys must elk hunt right so oh, no. uh, <laughs> I thought, well, these guys must elk hunt. I mean, they live right here by the mountain. So like the first lunch, first lunch we went out and I'm like, Hey, do you guys, where do you guys hunt elk? And they're like, Oh, we don't, we don't hunt. I'm like what? You, you don't hunt? What do you, you mean? Right here by the, you're right here by the mountains. What are you talking about? But, um, I was like employee 45 and we grew to maybe 110 before that, that company, um, got bought out. And I was the only hunter out of 110. That's um, crazy. So that was a big shock to me that some people didn't hunt and some people had a different opinion on hunting and things. Right. But, uh, anyway, so I'm like that first stage was just figuring out like how to hunt elk and how to find them and things like that. And if you got somebody helping you there, that's huge. And then it was like, all right, now I've figured out how to find them. How do I, 
how do I make a good shot on these things when you're like, your, your heart rate's high, your adrenaline's up, this bull's bugling and, and, uh, you know, how do you control that and, and get it done? And, but it's, it's fun working through all that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you moved, you moved out there for work. You've touched on work a couple of times. What, uh, what'd you do and, and kind of how has that played into, uh, what you're doing now? Yeah. So I've worked, um, <clears throat> I started working for, for 3M company initially and in the Minnesota area. And, um, I worked initially in this technology center where I was kind of in between uh, manufacturing and our laboratory is doing the product development. So I learned the manufacturing yep. processes, learned the manufacturing processes. I learned the, the product requirements and I would try and put the design for manufacturing information into the, into the product. And so that was part of my job. Another th- and 3M was pretty cool back then. They were really interested in, in technology development. Right. And so, so I also had a technology development project I had to, had to do to advance some technology and mine was tooling technology. So hmm. for, for a few years, um, and, and it fit my background a bit. So in mechanical engineering, I mean, the curriculum's pretty similar, but then you get some kind of emphasis you can do. And I pretty much, mm-hmm. my emphasis was kind of machine design and materials science is really what kind of what I focused on in my elective. So I had a pretty good materials background and I spent a few years trying to, you know, advanced tooling technology. How do we make this tool last longer, cut better, um, do the job better, transfer heat better, whatever. So that's where I really dug a lot more into, into steels and tool steels and in the properties and um, stainless versus non-stainless, all that. So, uh, right. So, yeah, I had the good kind of tooling background there. And then, but I would, I really enjoyed the product development. I moved more and more into the laboratories there. Um, and more out of the manufacturing, I still, I was still really tied to it and having the manufacturing initially really helped in product design development throughout the way. Mm-hmm. But for the most part after that, and I've, I did this for about 25 years total, um, it was mostly the product development. So, you know, design, analyze, um, you know, computer simulations. I did, you know, I do the CAD modeling and then I would right. do the finite element modeling, the structural analysis, um, God bless Vibration. you, CAD guys. That's stuff over my head. It's, it's, I don't have the patience for it. Yeah. The, the vibration. Well, I can't sit there and do it all day, but <laughs> I, you know, I'll design and then do some analysis mm-hmm. um, and then mm-hmm. go yep. get, get the prototype parts, test them for a while. You know, so it's part of it. It's partially in the lab, partially on the computer. Um, sure. But yeah, structural analysis, fluid dynamic modeling, um, vibration modeling, and, you know, impact modeling and then impact like shock testing also in the laboratories. So, hmm. um, and it was kind of the, it kind of became kind of a perfect storm for broadheads. I was going to um, say, it sounds like you were working definitely. on broadheads before you even knew it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. You know, I wasn't, I had no intention to design broadheads and really after I moved to Colorado and four years of, of working hard at elk hunting and, um, I finally got a, a shot on a good bowl. And I hit a little far forward, hit, hit a shoulder blade mm-hmm. and that broadhead just, it just failed. It didn't penetrate, you know, more than a few inches. Um, and man, was I devastated. I'd worked so hard for four years to get oh, that I shot bet. and to lose that bull. I mean, that, that elk, um, I mean, I looked for it for, I looked for it for a week and then I was just sick about it. Um, 
And then also I was kicking myself because then I would look at the broadhead I was using and realize, man, there's all kinds of failure modes in this thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, you start why, critically evaluating yeah. it and you're like, man, there are errors everywhere. Yeah. So, I mean, that was 2004. Um, I started doing, I, I kind of decided right there, you know, I'd always been, um, you know, kind of a high achieving, high driving, you know, engineer on product development. And I was kicking myself for not having applied that to my passion at the time, which yeah. was bow hunting. Um, and it still is. But uh, so anyway, I initially started doing some research, seeing what was out there. I found the Ashby reports. This is in 2004. Um, I went full Ashby there um, or as, as far as I could with what was available right. for yeah, a year yeah. or so. Um, and I started, but I started buying a lot of broadheads and testing them. And, you know, I, so as an engineer, I never just read a report or a study and just kind of believe it. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I always, I always kind of look at it with a critical eye. And I mean, I, I just spent over an hour talking to Dr. Ashby a couple of weeks, a few weeks ago. Great, uh, great guy. Um, really like him. Super helpful. Um, and we can get to that more later, but, um, and, and there's, so I don't want to say I didn't believe any of it. It's just, I look at it with a critical eye. Could sure. I believe, as, I believe as, you have as to. everyone you know? always should, as everyone always you have should, to, absolutely. I mean, yeah. that's anytime that you're reading and this applies outside of just archery. Like if you're reading a stat or whatever, like don't just blindly believe it. Yeah. Look into it. If you don't understand it, figure it out. Yeah. It's, yeah. Somebody showed me some, you know, somebody showed me statistics yesterday and drew a conclusion. And I'm like, well, I believe the data, but I don't know if you can draw that conclusion. You know, we should check yeah. this, this, or that. Let's check these. Depends on the context. See. Depends on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, that got me started in uh, testing broadheads, different designs, um, mm -hmm. two blade, longer heads, things like that. And then after a couple of years of doing that, I, I really wasn't happy with um, the materials and manufacturing processes that were yep. being used. And yep. I thought, you know, I can design and build better broadheads than this potentially. And that got me started. That was in 2006. I think I uh, I did my had my first design and got parts laser cut in one place and ground another place and heat treat somewhere else. And, uh, um, but that, that got me started on it. So it's so about seven years of iteration before I um, was really happy with the design through, you know, five different steels and, and, you know, learned a lot of things along the way, um, you know, fixed the failure mechanism, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, um, you were, I'm guessing you were mainly looking at different tool seals when you were, uh, kind of exploring your different options for a head. You know, initially I, um, uh, German kinetics is one of the broadheads I was testing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When I, when yeah, I got time, those in hand, 440B, I think. Yep. 440B. Um, yeah. yep. And, um, you know, they just, they designer, I guess there was a professor of mechanical engineering, I believe. Yep. Marcus. Yeah. Marcus. Um, and when I first ordered those things, I was kind of blown away. Like, wow, this is some high quality looking broadhead right here. Um, the sharpness was excellent. 440B I thought was kind of an okay choice. Um, so I started out with like the 440C and different heat treats and things. 440B and C aren't, aren't too much different. Um, 
But I pretty quickly decided, and I knew this, that you can't get the you can't get the really high mechanical properties with stainless like you can with a non-stainless steel. Um, why, yeah. why is that? You're a materials guy. Can you can you explain why that is? Yeah, it's that high chromium content. So stainless mm-hmm. steels have stainless yeah, steels. That's have what I thought at, it was. Yeah, at least thirteen percent chromium. Um, so that brings down the mechanical properties, and usually it's okay. I mean, you can you can use them for. Um, I mean, I I I led tool design for a couple of years there as well, and we use stainless steel a lot in tools. Um, they can clamp up, take a lot of force if they're thick enough. Um, but you wouldn't use them for a metal stamping die, for instance. A two steel is used for metal stamping die because you need you need something that can cut and be very hard um, to cut and hold that edge, but yet can take the impact strength. And that's yeah. That's in the end what I ended up with, but I really started trying to get stainless steels to work um, because, you know, I was worried about corrosion for one, um, and it that was the norm in the in the industry. Everybody was, well, they were mostly using stainless. There was a few, um, like, low-carbon steels that were coated or something like that. Um, sure. I wasn't I wasn't seeing steel, uh, tool steels, but you know, I went from, like, uh, 440C, um uh, some versions of that are similar to 420, some 154 CM, ATS 34. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I played around with quite a few different stainless blade steels and they're fine in knives. And I don't think people realize the difference. And I almost don't want to tell them. I mean, I mean in, yeah. a, in a way, <laughs> yeah. in a way, I don't really want to, I mean, you know, my wife keeps telling me, why are you telling all your secrets? And I, I tell her, well, I think I really need to educate people in this or yeah, for them well, to want to buy, I, for them to want to use our broadheads and do better. And so, yeah, you know. well, I, I appreciate you uh, at least having the integrity to talk about that. And I think that's something we've mentioned a couple of times is that the, you know, guys will look at knife charts and then they'll, they'll think that's what, the, you know, they'll base their broadhead choice off of that. And there, I think there are some points in knife charts that you can take away that are helpful, but uh, uh, knives aren't built to stand up to blunt force impacts, the majority of them anyway. Uh, and it's, it's a very different set of qualities that you want out of a broadhead than you want out of a knife. Totally. And I mean, that's, I oh, mean, that's the, like the, that. The application and duration of use is completely different. Right. 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 You know, that's if I would hate to have a knife that lasted one, one slash, right? And then I have to sharpen it. Yeah. Right. Right. Right? But yet, but yet broadheads, that's very common. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And the thing about the stainless blade steels, there are some very good ones, but they're also like an eighth inch thick or thicker and they're, and they're not, and they're not seeing high impact. I don't, I don't think people have really, I don't think they really thought about that that much that, a broadhead has a really um, specific set of qual- set of requirements that nothing else really has. I mean, where else do you have a blade going 300 feet per second into a bone? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so to me, it it needs kind of a special set of, of properties, and and that's where the metallurgy came in and helped. Um, S7. You know, I finally gave up on stainless. I went right to the toughest uh, tool steel S7. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an impact steel. Um, usually, you know, S7 and A2 are, are, are used for metal punches and dies. And, and usually, right. usually S7 is for punches. 
when you're just going to form it. And A2 is often for the die when you're going to cut it. And Gotcha. And typically you can get a little more toughness out of S7, um, but you can't get as good of an edge. You know, the Rockwell C on that's going to be maybe 50 C, 56. Um, it was mm. good. I mean, I, I love it. I, uh, I used it for two years, cut a lot of animals with it. I would go, if A2 disappeared right now, I'd go back and use S7, no doubt. But I just felt like, um, you know, I should try A2. I think it could give me even that better edge. And then once yeah. I did it, once I did it, I realized, oh my God, this, um, this is another thing people don't realize. I think out there is how much sharpness and edge retention matters. And A2 sure, has that. Yeah. A2 has that in spades. You can get it 60, you can get it 63 Rockwell C, but I like Gracious to do it at, si- at 60, oh. 60 Rockwell C. Um, and I played around with the heat treat for about a year doing different, um, seeing, okay, what hardness would I get? How sharp, what edge retention? And then, okay, let's break it. Use an Instron and do break strength testing and mm-hmm. impact testing and impact testing. Look at the peak force and the area under the curve and, and look at, okay, how much energy is it taking to break it? And so I, uh, I dialed in the heat treat process and then I added, I also added cryogenic, um, mm-hmm. a cryogenic cooling in there to, to cooling, transform yeah, all the, quenching. all the austenite, you know, you get this austenite that's uh, quenched and it goes to Martin site. This is the, you know, the microstructure. And then you can get some retained austenite. It can be like soft or weak spots. Um, you do the cryogenic treatment that converts all that retained austenite to Martin site. Um, makes it a lot more consistent. Yeah. Much more consistent. And, you know, I, and really, I wasn't ever making these to sell them. I was making these um, to make the best possible broadhead I could for my for myself. It's really everything I've done is really to become a better bow hunter, more lethal bow well, hunter along the way. And hey, I like I, I, I want to throw a comment in here because it, this is a a reoccurring theme with a lot of the the upper level minds that I know in the industry is that not saying that it's, you know, selfish, but they set out to not sell something. Yeah. They They wanted for themselves to build something better for themselves. And I know that you didn't make this specific comment, but in a lot of cases, it's one uh, kind of a matter of pride where if I can't make what I consider the best thing ever, it never will go to market. Like I've, I've got a couple of buddies that are, you know, leaps and bounds ahead of the vast majority of the industry in certain sectors, but they won't go to market because they're still kind of like toe and toe with, with one or two other people. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and yeah. it's like, man, you've got a great product. <clears throat> yeah, but it's not the best. Like, if it's not the best, I, I'm no. Nope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly well, I, which I, I think it's awesome. I think that it's phenomenal for the industry having people like that. Yeah, so I think 2006 was the when I you know did my first design iteration. And 2016 is really when. Um, we formed a company and launched it in January, 2017. And it probably wouldn't have happened, honestly, if, um, so, I mean, I got the broadhead to where I, 
I was very happy with the design. I was making about a hundred broadheads prototypes each year. And we took 50 animals or so with that final design. Um, I just didn't think people would pay what it would cost to make it. And so mm-hmm. I just, I was working on the cost over and over. And, um, you know, I thought I'm going to sell these things for 50 bucks a piece. Nobody's going to pay that. And I would just kind of kill it before it got started. And it was really, I was up, I started hunting this wilderness area. I was way back, um, way back on a mountain, probably seven miles in. And I run into a guy, a young guy and I, you know, I'm pissed that he's in my secret spot back there. <laughs> um, <laughs> really? But <clears throat> I'm thinking, oh man. And I talked to him a little bit. He's like a green is he's like a new hunter. He's got a, a 1970s bow. That was his dad's and Heck just yeah. seemed like a nice, seemed like a nice guy. And I'd camp there overnight at the spot. Cause I'd, busted some elk out right there and just threw my camp down there and I'd bugled a few times to see if I get anything talking. Anyways, he's there. I'm like, Hey, well you hunt this basin. I'm going to hike out and go to the next one over. Um, he shot, he ended up shooting a bull there like 30 minutes later, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, and I helped him pack it out that night. And the whole time I'm like, this guy, I mean, <laughs> but anyways, we became, uh, we became friends. We ended up hunting together a couple years later. Um, he saw me shoot a, he saw me shoot two bulls. One was a, a steep quartering away shot where it, 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 it sliced the hind quarter. It was that steep of a quartering away. And it went up Oof. through the heart, went up through the heart and poked out, um, between the arrow was sticking out between the shoulder and the neck on a, on a, yeah. on a nice six point bowl. And he saw that one. He's like, what is that broadhead? I'm like, oh, it's just, it's one I, I make or design. And then the <laughs> next year, the next year you saw me shoot one. Uh, I shot a cow at 54 yards and it, it zipped through her and it stuck in the, the sand like 10 yards past her. And she went 10 yards and you know, she was hit and then she fell and rolled 300 yards down the steep ravine. But, and he, and then he was, he was with me. He went up and I pulled my broadhead out and I shaved hair on my arm with it. He's like, you gotta be, you gotta be kidding me. Why are you not like taking this to market? And, um, turns out, turns out he had a marketing background and, um, is, is this Eric? It's Eric. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> all right. So, so we ended up being, um, being co-founders. Cause I said, you know, here's the deal. I love the design, uh, manufacturing development product testing. I don't really want to do any, um, business, set up the website, you know, set up marketing, that kind of thing. So anyways, we launched, we launched it together. Um, that's awesome. Well, tell, tell Eric, he does a good job because I love your guys' marketing. I think it's great. Yeah. So he, uh, for two years, um, it's kind of funny is that, so after two years of no paycheck, I mean, we both quit our jobs and we're working side jobs to pay the bills and we're hard at it. Um, he left the company at that point. Um, he did, a, he did a great job like with the initial website, things like that, but he just needed, he got some good job offers in the industry and, and went with it. So, uh, so he, I work with him a little bit now, but he actually left the company at that point. We still, we're still great friends and, and hunt together, but our mark, it's what's funny is our marketing effort. It's been pretty minimal the last two years. Um, mm-hmm. but I mean, everybody says, oh, they over market so much, man, if you saw our marketing budget, you'd probably laugh about it, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Eric, Eric, uh, Eric does get credit though for, um, yeah, just the approach and, and getting the initial marketing out there. And then he helps me 
today yet with uh, with marketing kind of as needed as well. Yeah, so, that's a good guy, good dude. Yep. I, I'll, I'll I'll respect anyone who's helping helping get a good quality product out there. That's that's for sure. So let's let, let's talk. We touched we touched on it for a minute, but let, let's talk about A two steel before we jump into into your different broadheads and their designs. So A two steel, like you mentioned, it's it's a it's a different monster. I don't, and I mean, uh, you, you made a point, I believe on Stickbow when you were talking about, uh, the, the difference between like 50 and 55 Rockwell and it's not, you know, it's not a 10% gain. It's a 10 times gain, or I can't remember the exact numbers, but you pointed out, but point being when you look at steels, uh, there's, I mean, you've got your, you know, upper echelon quality steels, but then A2 just sits in a whole different tier. Uh, um, and it's, it's a, it's like, I, I guess I would define it as like a super steel of some sort. I know super steel as I've always heard referred to as like S90 and S110. That's kind of for, you know, knife, knife discussion, I guess. But A2, I don't know if there's a better steel for hard impacts and this kind of thing. Uh, uh, can you dive a little bit deeper into like specifically why you chose it and, and, what what qualities it, it really exemplifies yeah so um you know a little bit about steels in general is i think there's a pretty good understanding that aluminum is not great for impacts um <laughs> it's sure. terrible it's terrible for impacts i mean I, i'm not going to use aluminum in any components that i make on the front of an arrow um and i, I know there's a lot of aluminum inserts that work work okay but i'm just you know, I'm, I'm going for the ultimate and material properties. And so I wouldn't use aluminum for impact. Um, right. And so, I mean, that's pretty well understood, but I don't think, one thing I don't think is understood that well is that there's a big range of steels and people say, well, it's an all steel, you know, insert an all steel head. Well, there's, there's low carbon steels that are pretty soft. And yep. so, um, so there's there's different steels and then some can be hardened some can't um so like uh and there's different stainless steels a lot of components out there in broadheads or inserts are are stainless steels um 300 series austenitic they cannot be hardened so Mm -hmm. they're not as strong right really yeah and that's the most common one of the more common ferrule materials is a 303 stainless or a 302 stainless. Um, yep. Hmm. And and they'll say like all stainless construction. And you know, I that's where I'm super critical when I hear it. it's all steel. Why well, look for the steel? What type is it? Yeah, well, yeah. what what type? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can it be hardened or not? Because you can go from you can go from say um, seventy thousand psi ultimate ultimate tensile strength, probably even lower, maybe fifty thousand psi up to 350,000 PSI with a steel by hardening it. So that's like a, that's a seven X difference in ultimate tensile strength. Mm-hmm. So I don't think a lot of people realize that, that so like 303 stainless, it's only a little bit stronger than 70, 75 aluminum. It's um, it maybe 30% higher. I don't remember what it is right offhand, but you compare that to a, a hardened, um, if you go to the four, 400 series, 400 like series, four, yeah. Yeah, then they're Martin Siddick, they can be hardened. So like a, a 416, a 420, a 440. Um, and they're, so that, that 
that one six or a point or two zero or four four. That's kind of the carbon content, and that can tell you how hard mm-hmm. can you get it. How hard can you hmm. get it? In four twenty, for instance, it's a fairly low carbon steel. You just can't yeah. get it that that hard. So typically four twenty. Right. 420s are typically going to be in that maybe 48 to 50, 52 Rockwell C. Um, so does it just become? I know uh, on on the broad head portion, if you if you over harden those types of stainless, they'll they're very prone to chipping and, and like hard edge shatter. Does it just become like super brittle on the ferrule? So the ferrule, <clears throat> the ferrule, you never want to harden. Well. I, it's if I would say never, but you don't need to harden it to say 52 Rockwell C. Um, sure. I mean, right. if you think about it, Matt, like a knife on, if you look at like a chopper, you've got the hardened edge, mm-hmm. but in most cases it's, it's a differential hardening mm-hmm. and your spine is going to be softer. It'll still be hard, but it's not, nearly the hardness of the cutting edge sure that makes sense right it, it gives sense. it it gives it a little bit yeah. of you know cushion so yeah, to speak yeah that makes sense yeah right. that's thanks for explaining that, that yeah and so i mean that's part of the reason why i like to have two different components and i haven't made a a one-piece construction i mean i've designed a one-piece construction head um considered doing it i just to me there's there's different jobs for that ferrule versus the blade and sure i like i like to make the ferrule on a swiss cnc machine where i can i can turn it and have the concentricity to ten thousandths of an inch and do the and choose the right material and hardness to have Mm -hmm. it be very strong yet yet very tough and then the blade i want to process it like i would a a really high-end knife blade where i Mm -hmm. can you know have a uniform uniform sheet go through the right heat treats i want go through the multi-stage grinding, honing processes. Um, and so it's, to me, a one-piece construction head is it's kind of a compromise on both of those. I mean, I do like, I like that it's one piece. I mean, they're strong. They can be made very strong. Um, sure, right. They just typically don't, I mean, in my opinion, they're not ideal for how sharp they typically, um, you know, I haven't spent a lot of time trying to like, what's the ultimate edge I can get, but I've been unsatisfied with the edges I've, I've got on all the ones I've tested, which has been quite a few. Um, Hmm. so, but yeah, so into the, into the hardness thing, um, you're right. If you tried to harden stainless steels that high, they are brittle. They don't take the impact strength. And I've, I've been taking some of competitive broadhead blades out there recently. I just did some more of this a couple of months ago. And so I do a break strength test on every lot of blades we make to make sure the heat treat is right. What's um, a break? Check- Can you explain what a, what the break strength test is? Yep, I'll use an Instrom machine. I'll I'll do it in three point bending. So I'll have mm-hmm. um, basically two cylinders below the blade, and one cylinder pushing down on. These are like cylinders on their sides. Um, so it's mm-hmm. the blades like laying across two beams, and you you come down with another beam essentially, but they're, they're cylinders and you're, we're pushing in the middle of the blade and trying to bend it in half basically. Right. Um, right. Yep. So, um, and I know with our, with our S series blade, I can do that. I can apply a thousand pounds that way and get zero damage. Um, it stays in the elastic. It flexes just barely. 
but there's no yep. plastic, plastic deformation. Um, and so I did, I done it with the competitor blade and it's a, it's a premium stainless blade steel, I guess is what you call it. And I mm-hmm. snapped it. I snapped it with 70 pounds of force. I mean, Whoa. I, I could break that thing by hand. Now that I know mm. which direction it snaps in, I could literally break <laughs> it by hand. Um, hmm. And so, That's yeah, I don't think ideal. people, so to me, there's been a couple of companies that have tried to put, well, I'll just use a premium blade steel because I like it in my hunting knife and put it in a broadhead blade and they really don't have the impact strength. Um, you know, I don't know how to say it other than, other than, I mean, I just, yeah, no, that's yeah, I, I, gotcha. I think, I think that's completely, that's completely fair. You can be blunt about it and no problem here. Uh, yeah. So a two, just unbelievably durable, unbelievably durable steel. Um, what's I'm just, to be honest with you, I'm blown away. Even though all the materials background I had in the tooling engineering experience, um, and tooling technology development, I, uh, if you would have told me you can get a steel to 60 Rockwell C and, and have to apply that much force and it will bend before it breaks. Um, and it will just, I mean, when it yields just a little bitty kink to it, I mean, it's not blowing apart. Um, it, hmm. it did, it did initially before I worked through the whole heat treat. Um, mm-hmm. but the amount of toughness, that thing, the amount of energy it absorbs. If I look at that curve force distance, it's unbelievable. It's, it's, um, it's, it's rivals S seven or better, but yet it's at 60 Rockwell C. So the edge is incredible. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm amazed. So, I'm amazed myself. And, um, yeah, I'm just blown away. I think it's, I really feel like that's the advantage our broadhead has over what's out there. And what a lot of customers say is, you know, man, I shot this elk from end to end. I can't believe the penetration. And to me, that's really that, sharpness and edge retention along with that toughness that really is key to all that yeah well yeah. i, I so think you, the the really cool part is like when a lot of people think about hardness right they, they understand that hardness will allow you to achieve a better initial edge right but in most cases they also equate that with brittle Whereas yeah, and it, what, what, well, there is a, what, right, there is a trade-off there typically is a yeah, trade-off there is. And, there, and there even is an A2 steel, but the nice thing is that trade-off is way up at 63 rock LC or, or higher. Yeah. So. Well, and that was what I was going to say is you're on the lower end of the working range right? for that particular steel and how you're treating it, but you're still at 60, which is crazy, right? So, so your, your edge is phenomenal but you're not up into the brittle level for the material so you still have some some you know uh some give some some absorption in in it where other materials that are say i mean i know broadheads that are at 50 that are on the high end for that material. They hold yeah. an edge decently well, but they'll chatter and, and and they'll they'll break the tips off, right? Right, right. So it's yep. not purely the the Rockwell value. It, it's a combination of Rockwell and the working range and all those other factors that you you need to pay attention to. 
Yeah. So you you mentioned <laughs> yeah. something that I want you to touch on before we move on to the the Rockwell and and edge retention portion of that is you you mentioned heat treat and you kind of you 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 blew by it and I would assume you have some type of proprietary uh, heat treat and I'm not asking you to disclose any of that but point being I want to emphasize that you can have and I think you even mentioned that you did have it blow up at a, at a certain point before you got your heat treatment down. And that's a huge difference in you, you can have two manufacturers that'll have the exact same steel. And a lot of people will just be like, Oh, it's the same thing. Like no, no yep. differences here, but the heat treatment is just as, if not more important than the steel that you're choosing uh, and, and, and how, how it's being heat treated and, uh, and the whole process that it goes through. So I just wanted to touch on that before before we move on to uh, edge retention and, and how Rockwell ties into that, so you, you're at a yeah, sixty, yeah. which is just which is just nuts. Uh, um, yeah, if, I can. If you, want, can, to, if you uh, want to talk about heat treat, then then go for it. No real problems here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you can't overemphasize. I mean, it's it's very important. It's it's almost as important as the the material you choose to start with. Um, and what's funny is, you know, I I have friends at different broadhead companies, and I'll ask them. Oh, well, what heat treat do you use? And they won't, they won't know, you know, and, <laughs> and, mo- and a lot of companies out there and their parts, they're just, whatever's a standard heat treat. Well, I can tell you my first parts, I use the standard heat treat. And if I look at my st- initial standard heat treat, um, and it was the same hardness, um, or pretty, very close to the same hardness. And it, it was like the standard process. If I look at that compared to what I do now, I'm more than double the force it takes to break it and more than double the energy and more than double the energy absorbed, um, before it yields. So, yeah. And so, you know, it's, I actually, it's huge. I actually, I, I didn't think I'd ever get to the S seven, um, impact strength and like total energy absorbed and I passed it up. Um, Hmm. and, so, you know, maybe I could go back to S7 and work on that heat treat and get that even better. I don't know, but I don't want to give up. I don't want to give up anything on the sharpness level and edge retention. And people don't, another thing people don't realize is you can get a, the harder it is, the sharper you can get it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think people kind of realize that when it's really soft, you know, you really can't, you know, <laughs> you just keep rolling chase the edge it, over. Chase it, chase it, chase it, chase it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. You can't polish a turd or something like that. I think the phrase yeah. is. <laughs> well, you can polish it. It's just not going to change. <laughs> but I, I but, think a, a really, um, I guess, relatable little tidbit for, for people that maybe don't understand a lot about metals. Um, a, a great example that was shared with me a couple years ago when talking about how important heat treat is, is buck knives. Before buck knives really kind of blew up on the market, no one wanted to use, what is it, 420? 420 HC. Yeah, 420 HC. Yeah. Like no one was using it. Because they thought it was junk. And it, it's by no means the best, right? But everyone today knows Buck and more than likely has one that's been handed down or is in a drawer somewhere. 
And it's primarily because they figured out how to properly utilize that material. And it became a very affordable knife that lasted, right? Right. Every material has that that certain process that allows you to maximize for the application. It's a matter of figuring it out, you know? Yep. And, yeah, I'm not going to go into the details of the whole heat treat process, but I wouldn't expect you to, <laughs> but yeah, there's certainly a lot to it. And, and that's part of the reason I don't mind disclosing some of this stuff. I don't think, I don't think any of these companies making broadheads are going to spend years of engineering to get things to this level. I just, I mean, the money's not there <laughs> to do it. The money's not yeah. there to pay, to pay engineers for, um, for years of development. You know, I did this, uh, my wife called it like bow hunter community service. Um, you know, when I was spending <laughs> for the first two years of the company, I just poured all these hours into it and, you know, without a, without a check because I was passionate about it. It's what I, you know, yep. you, you it, wanted to me, it to succeed and you were diving in. Yeah. And, and I'm glad I did at this point, it's paying the bills and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of living the dream. I get a design, develop the products I love working on and, um, yeah, I really enjoy it. Yeah. That's great. So, uh, um, a two incredible steel you've got, uh, I, I, I apologize. I was wrong in my outline. You have five types. I, I missed the, uh, uh, the crossbow series. Uh, but you've got, you've got a bunch of different heads to choose from depending on the type of game that you're, uh, you're chasing. You've got a solid a vented, uh, what you call the buff series and the wide heads, uh, kind of walk us through those and, and, uh, and the, the pros and cons of, of each design. And, and, uh, and then I've got, we probably have a couple of questions for you along the way. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it kind of sounds like more than it is. They're all it's kind of a similar, um, it's the initial broadhead and then just yeah. S- yeah. subtle change, subtle changes for different to fit, you know, some different yes. applications here and there. Yeah. So they all use Th- the thanks same. For, thanks for pointing that out. Thanks for pointing <clears throat> that out. They're, they're, they're pretty, they're all pretty similar. They've just got some different qualities. Yeah. So, um, and it's really, and some of it's been just like, what are the customers bugging me for and should I do it or not? Does it make sense? And I'll, you know, design and test it. But I really started out with the, the V100, V125, um, which was, uh, so all the broadheads have the same, the same A2 tool steel, same 62,000 thick blaze, mm-hmm. same heat treat, um, same, same grinding process, all that. And initial one was a vented blade. Um, so I could get down to a hundred grain. It had a grade five titanium ferrule. Um, that's another reason that I went with the you know, kind of a two piece construction is, man, I think grade five titanium is tough to beat for a hundred grain head for a ferrule. Mm-hmm. It's got the, it's got the best strength to weight ratio. Um, you know, that's well, why it makes for it. a very tough, lightweight head, which is hard to come by in the industry. Yeah. It, it's better than, it's better than a steel ferrule in my opinion at a hundred grain, because you can have so much more material. A steel ferrule has to be pretty mm. little, pretty skinny and little, um, to match with our hundred grain blade. And so the titanium is a better choice there. I, I like that. Um, anyway, that was the initial, and then it was a steel version for the 
the V125. Um, that's what we launched with was those two heads. And, um, you know, it did well. A lot of people um, liked them. I had, you know, vented heads in general have, a, have make more noise than a, a solid blade head. There's a bit of a, a hiss to them. Um, and, you know, Aaron sure. Schneider mentioned, mentioned that on a podcast and our, our sales went from going up to going down. <laughs> what he says. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, Aaron. Um, Damn it. Yeah. But, <clears throat> it was funny. I sent him some heads. This is like July of our first year. I sent him some heads to try. And right away, he mentions them on a podcast. And our, I mean, our sales like um, jumped up. And then he said, oh, they're kind of loud. They jumped down. So I realized, wow, this guy has some influence in the industry. Right? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. yep. So um, anyway, I did some sound testing. And sure enough, uh, take the vents out. And they're quite a bit quieter. Another thing I realized, though, and why I personally don't think sound matters as much as, as some people do, is that um, a buddy of mine is a sound engineer. He develops um, high-end microphones. And he, he brought his equipment out and we, we shot through four microphones um, that were downrange 30 yards. And then they passed through there and went to a target. And, and I'll, have to, I'll have to show you guys the, the sound plots. So decibel, he explained this to me too. Decibel meters are not a great way to measure a, yeah. um, a, a sound when it's, when it's varying and you're trying to catch this little peak. Because mm -hmm. a, mm -hmm. a decibel meter, a decibel meter is going to average power over some period of time, yep. and the background noise comes into it more. You can, it's not a good way to compare two things. Um, anyway, the best way to do it is get actual sound amplitude over time, and what we saw in that is that you get this spike of the bow shooting, and and I tested thirteen different um, broadhead designs along with field points, and feathers and veins, and and uh, what I saw is that, man. Everything, you couldn't tell one arrow from the other. Everything's pretty quiet right after that shot until those arrows get just a few yards from the target and then they flare up. Um, yeah. If you listen to all, if you listen to all this downrange, you're like, oh yeah, this is louder than this. But I think in reality that the animal doesn't hear that difference from that vented blade or from that little bit louder vein until it's pretty damn close to them. Um, and then you can argue, well, is that last, um, you know, few milliseconds. Let me think of what it was. Ten milliseconds. Now, a few milliseconds. Can they react to that? Well, then, then you're looking was. at reaction yeah. time and how fast they can actually move. But, right. Right. I mean, in in my mind, the first noise, which is going to be the bow, is if if any sound is going to give you an issue that's going to be it because it has the most time to react to it. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's, um, I think sometimes people mistake the sound of the, I mean, when the deer moves a little bit later, they say, Oh, it hurt my arrow. But to me, it, well, it depends a lot. If the animal's looking at you, I mean, that you're, oh, you're yeah. busted. I mean, you're Don't busted bad yeah. there. If, if the arrow, if the animal's just on edge, he hears that bow noise, you know, he's gone potentially. The other thing they do is if they hear that bow noise, they look real quickly. Their vision is so great. I think they can see that movement and react to that as well. Um, yep. They see something moving. They don't know what it is. Right. But they're going, something's coming towards me. But so I kind of learned two things. Um, one, I don't think it matters as much as some people do. But the other one, hey, I know how to make this quieter. So why don't I, I just do it? And uh, <laughs> so that was the 
that was the solid blade. Um, initially, we came out with that as a S125. It used the same titanium ferrule, same exact blade shape, just no vents. And uh, we just that was the S125 on up. And our higher weights just use the same blades with the with heavier ferrules, um, more steel in the ferrule for different weights. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you touched up. on that. That's something that's a little bit different for you that, but I think it makes it easier for the consumer is, you know, when you, when people compare, you know, 125 to 150 or 200 grain heads, the size changes a little bit every time. Uh, but for yep. you, you use that same blade profile and then you just make the ferrule. It looks be a little bit thicker and a little bit longer depending on the, uh, on the weight of the head. Right. And I saw that kind of happening in the industry too, that guys were choosing a hundred grain head over 125 because it maybe had shorter blades or less, less blade surface area. And Mm -hmm. what, I mean, I spent a lot of time working on the flight as well. I mean, my broadhead blade, it started out quite a bit longer and, and it got, um, you know, I, I added the Tonto tip just from testing other, other you know, kind of three to one, um, two blade heads where I was breaking tips or bending tips. Um, mm-hmm. I added a Tonto tip. I shortened it up over the years. I did push force testing. And then I realized that to me, edge sharpness and edge retention kind of trumped the mechanical. Well, people, I think people kind of improperly use mechanical advantage, but it's that, that, you know, length to width ratio. Um, and when I say it's kind of improper, cause you're not wedging an animal apart. Um, across the width of the blade. So it's not exactly like a wedge. Um, I think the force to push through is it's a cutting that's kind of driving it. Um, anyway, we can get into that more later if you want, but yeah. Anyways, I, yeah, uh, I shortened definitely. up, I did, I was doing fluid dynamic modeling, um, you know, with, with straight on wind or different directions. I was mm-hmm, trying to minimize, mm-hmm. trying to minimize planing. Um, I was really afraid of going from a three blade, you know, chisel point, um, which was kind of the typical broadhead of the day going from that, going from that to like a longer two blade. I didn't want to lose up. I didn't want it to plane. Um, you know, through these same years getting into out West big game hunting, I also realized, man, if I could extend my range a little bit here, I could be way more successful. I was passing up, you know, coming from being a whitetail hunter, it was really under 40 yards and under was really what I, what I practiced and what I felt confident in. And, um, man, I passed up and then I pushed it to 50 when I moved out West and I passed up a lot of animals in that 55, 60, 65 yard range. And I just started realizing, man, if I do, if I can really practice at those distances and be able to shoot that, I can be way more successful. And, and to me, it really has made a difference. I mean, this last year I had eight hunts, and I got eight animals. I mean, I'm, I'm so excited. I actually like filled all my tags, um, <laughs> you know, with a buck antelope on uh, public land and over the counter elk. And, and, and I think about where I started and all the tag soup I was eating to how successful I'm, I was this year. And I'm not going to be six, that successful every year. I know I'm knock on wood. It was a great year. Well, it's but, a good feeling though. Um, yeah. And I know it's and definitely extending my range was part of that. And, you know, I, I, you know, I feel like along with the broadhead and having total confidence in it and, and I dip, I take more shot angles now than I used to. So I kind of can maximize any opportunity, I think with, 
a little yeah. bit more dis a little bit more distance or it's a frontal shot like my odd dad 42 yard frontal shot um on a pretty tough boned animal but i felt really confident i could make the shot and if i hit a little bone i felt confident it was it was gonna not you know the broadhead wasn't gonna fail um and i got right. a quick pat quick pass through quick kill um but you know um yeah, what what were you even talking about when I? When we, I we were talking about the different the different. <laughs> no, uh, it's a, it's a good rant. We love it. Uh, um, we were talking about the different broadhead profiles or the different broadhead types you have. But one, uh, I, I've heard you mention this before in in different podcasts, and I think Aaron's touched on it before, is that you you've mentioned that you if you're taking longer shots, you recommend your vented series head. Why why is that? <clears throat> yeah, I don't really rec. I wouldn't say I recommend it. What I try to tell people is, um, well, this is, I mean, this is the truth from what I know personally is that occasionally I'll get somebody that'll say that the vented head, they were shooting the vented, they switched to solid and they don't, and they don't shoot quite as well for them at long range. Hmm. And so I'll pass that on. What I'll say is that, you know, 90 plus percent of the people tell me, they both shoot great, but once in a while, somebody will say the vented is a little more forgiving. And if I just think about it, you know, the physics there, um, yeah, yeah, maybe, I mean, there's less surface area for the pressure to act for, upon. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's, head. I wouldn't think that it'd be significant, but there's definitely some causation there yeah. where if someone has shot a solid and then they shot the vented and I mean, archery is very mental. So if if they're yep. thinking that it's going to be better and then it's better, well, that's the reason. I mean, I can yeah. see the I can see the tie, right? Because if you have less surface area, if you do have a crosswind, then theoretically there should be a little less impact. Yeah, you know, a little less um, surface area for that pressure to act on, and that's. That's kind of why I went with the vented originally. I was just, I, I wanted really, really good long range flight. Um, and I felt like the vented would be, would do a better job there. But, sure. you know, I, I currently shoot, I currently shoot our S125 primarily. Um, although I, I shot the S125 and V100 with, with inserts to be equal, like all summer long to make sure, do I really want to switch over to the salad? And I thought, yeah, it's the new head. I want to do it that year. And, and then when we came with S100, I spent the summer shooting a V100 and S100 side by side. Man, if there's a difference in flight, I sure couldn't see it. I mean, I shoot to, <laughs> I shoot to 100 yards um, about every day. I mean, my range, um, I could shoot to, you know, 120 here. I can shoot further, I guess, if I if I wanted to. But that's what my I can get my right. pins out to. But I shoot Start a lot. Campaigns if you keep doing that. Yeah, it, it's funny. I used to think. I used to think Cam Haynes was crazy, and then like a few years later, I I do what I think he's doing. <laughs> yeah, then crazy. you're doing it, <laughs> and you're yeah, like, oh, yeah. this this isn't that bad. Yeah. Like I tell you, you what, though, shooting it, it. shooting at one twenty and and longer, like it makes those sixty yard shots look feel like chip shots. Like, oh, like, oh, it, it does. Yeah, it does. Oh yeah, I mean, that if was... somebody asked me if somebody thinks I'm crazy for shooting a hundred or one twenty, and I I can understand that being a Midwest whitetail guy like I was at one time, but. They would say, why would you do that? I, I described my mountain goat hunt this year. I mean, I had, I watched these goats for two days until I, I saw an opportunity to get this shot. I belly crawled in there to a rock. It's the closest I was going to get. 
I was 70 yards. I picked out the biggest, um, the biggest Billy there. And I, I, uh, you know, I range, I ranged it. It was 70 yards. I had a, I had a crosswind of about 15. Um, and it, and then it, it let up a little bit and I'm like, if I can hold steady, I'm going to take the shot. And I'm, I'm kneeling beside a boulder. So the wind was off me for the most part. Um, and I aimed a little behind the crease. The wind was left to right. And I hit two inches in front of the crease at 70 yards. Like, I mean, within, I mean, like exactly where I wanted to hit, like within a couple of inches, I do. zip, zip through so quick. I wasn't sure if I hit it. And then I saw a puff of white, <laughs> white hair come off of the shoulder. Um, and it ran, it ran back to 99 and it turned back to look at me and then it was quartering on just a quick look back. I ranged it at 99, dialed it to 99, let another arrow fly. And this time the wind affected it a bit more, but, um, instead of hitting between the shoulders, I hit to the, just the right of the shoulder and then went out through the, it cut the femoral artery, broke the hip on the way out and just dropped it right there. Um, <laughs> at night at 99 yards. And with a mountain goat, you want to, you wanted to stop it before it jumps off a cliff. Right. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. So that's why I was thinking, put another arrow into it if you can. And, yeah. You know, that was, um, it, and there's a time when my nerves would have probably got to me. And I wouldn't even made that shot, but you know, it, why do I practice long range? It's so I can make those 70 yard shots and feel super comfortable with them. And then if I have yeah. a longer follow, if I have a longer follow up, I can, I can do it. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's yeah. Absolutely. honestly, that's my main reason for shooting that far. I mean, I'll be honest, most of my practice starts at like 60 and then I back up. I, I'll shoot closer sometimes, but I get bored really fast and they ruin arrows. But uh, that's it's always just for that, you know, you don't know when you're going to have to make that follow-up shot. So I'd rather know that I can shoot, you know, 90, 100, 110 and be fine with it. Yeah. Yeah, if something's off with your bow and you shoot 100 yards, you're going to find out really oh, quick. Yeah, learn <laughs> immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so you've, uh, so what, what weights do you have your vented and solid heads available in? Yeah, from 100 grain up to um, up to 250 is kind of the range we go, and uh, the the V series is it's every 25 grains from 100 to 225 for our V series and our S series, gotcha. um, and then our buff series is just really our S series with the bleeder blade removed. Um, I was having right, guys that right. were I was having guys that were going Cape Buffalo hunting and asking me which of our broadheads would you recommend for Cape Buffalo and I'd say to, to be honest, I haven't made it yet. I would probably <laughs> remove the, I'd probably remove the bleeder blade. Um, I, for two years, I did not have a bleeder blade during development. Um, initially mm-hmm. I didn't want one. I didn't want one. I wanted to just get max penetration. But what I, what I saw is, um, and they work great, no doubt. But what I saw once in a while, we get like a really poor blood trail. Um, not, not a lot, but once in a while it'd be like, no blood. What, what's going on? And I think it's just that single slice. It's just the way that the muscle fibers might line up or that hide gets tensioned over it um, or yep, things, yep. You know, things move Depending in there. Depending on the um, situation and exactly where it yep. hit. And, you know, there's a yep. lot of factors there for sure. Yeah, a lot of physiology to that for sure. And I didn't, I didn't want to add it. My brother, Tim, um, who killed, he's a, he's killed more whitetails than blue tongue. I think, I mean, he's just a, <laughs> Whitetail <laughs> maniac, and um, he'd shot more animals with me than that than I had at the heads at the time. And 
And he was saying, man, you should add a bleeder. And I didn't want to do it. I, I drug my feet on it. I designed it in a few times. Um, I didn't like that it was reducing the strength of the ferrule or the main blade. Um, did several iterations to where I felt really confident that, okay, the main blade is just as strong as it used to be. And the ferrule is just as strong as it used to be. And now I'm getting that extra three quarter inch cut. Um, and yeah. I didn't want to reduce, I didn't want to reduce penetration, but really it's pretty minimal. It's like probably in that 5% range. Um, so I, I generally recommend it on, on deer and elk and, you know, North American big game. I think having that cross cut and having that hole open up, you just get, you just get more blood on the ground from what I've seen. Um, that's why I added yeah. it, but, it, but it there's some animals. Yeah. yeah. There's some animals that, um, really all you care about you really what you need is max penetration um yeah like well, and, that, and that's kind of the yeah. line right if, if yep. you're shooting whitetail or you know black bear or antelope you know whatever then it's not like you need four five six feet of penetration right right that's a different world than when you start looking at buffalo, giraffe, hippo, like, you know, even like yep. potentially like moose, like those are really large animals. Depending on the shot, you might need that extra, you know, five to 10%. Yeah, I think when you talk about animals like that, um, you kind of forget about trajectory. And what's going to happen at 40 plus yards. And you just, you just look at the factors that are, okay, how can I really maximize penetration? Right. Mm-hmm. And, to, and to me, that's a little different scenario than that, than like what, what I do, which is hunt, you know, I think I hunted six or seven different species last year in, in the U S and, um, and I don't need that. Um, yeah, it's different than hunting a hippo. Um, so mm-hmm. it's agreed. Yep. And I, yeah, I have no mass, massively I, different. And I, I'm confident that like with my S125 broadhead, I can get a double shoulder blade pass through on a bull elk. Um, I mean, I've just looked at the, I've measured the force, done the calculations, shot through the bones. Um, I can do it, and that, you know that's really kind of the heaviest thing I'm hunting right now. Um, yeah, yeah, and I mean. For the most part, like when when we're typically talking about hundred and hundred twenty five grain heads, that that's really one of the big things that we mention is that there are very few heads in that weight range, yeah, that are up to our I guess standards for durability, which is yep. huge. And. Which so is probably one of the biggest questions we get asked is what 120 or yeah. 100 or 125 grain head would you recommend? We're like, there's like three, there's like three heads <laughs> like that, yeah. you, that you could use. So I yeah, mean like you know, your design where you've, you know, basically got the same blade, but you're using a lighter, but still extremely strong ferrule to achieve that total weight you've got the durability you've got the blade design that's you know this basically the same even for like your 200 grain heads 
Yeah, so that's the thing is not... when you get up to, I agree, when you get up to a 200 grain head, there's there's some pretty durable heads out there, no doubt. Um, a hundred, one twenty-five. It's there's not. <laughs> so I'm, really I'm not. with you there. Agreed. Yep, I'm very, with you there. For very sure. few and far between on those. Yeah. Well, and and that's what kind of makes this tough is a lot of guys get stuck in that kind of in between where they're going like I I'm on board. I I want to maximize my flight quality. I want to maximize my durability. I want to maximize efficiency and I'm willing to add some weight and and you know boost my potential. But I I'm not ready to go to a 200 grain head. Right? Right, right. Cuz that's where most of the at least in in my opinion where most of your quality options really become available and yeah. not yours but industry wise yeah the standard per se yep yeah. i agree um i agree you can get you can get tougher tougher heads at 125 than you can at 100 and 150 versus 1 125 in general um and yeah. i've tried to well i've tried to drive that durability down all the way down to 100 grains yeah and i think that that's awesome because Typically, what you see is the hundred, you know, starting at the hundred grain and then moving up. Your blade thickness is going to change. Your, you know, you're going to start filling in the vents. You're, you know, you're going to start adding weight by reinforcing. And so then, you know, logically, you end up with, hey, this is my heaviest head, and it's also the most durable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. 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 Whereas you kind of took the approach of going, I want all of that, but I want it down here too. Which yeah. You know, I think what is, is great for the market. Yeah. What I wanted to do, like I, like I told you, I went, I went full Ashby for a year or so there. I was trying to go just as heavy as I could. It, it conflicted with my desire to also extend my range. Um, and, you know, Bose had, much less energy than they do now. They're less efficient, but yeah, I, I was lobbing logs out there and, and, you know, we can, we can talk a bit more about the physics, but in general, the more mat, the more mass you can get, the better the, for penetration, um, the higher the mass, the more retained momentum you're going to get. The trade-off is, um, trajectory as it slows down, mm-hmm. as yeah. it slows down. Um, and, and for me, I want to, I want to shoot a hundred yards plus I want to go shoot, total archery challenge to shoot 120 yards and also hunt with that so to me to me that's <laughs> and, like and a not 500. everyone is is running an 80 30 bow like i am where yeah i, I ran tech with my 975s last year <laughs> oh, <geez>. oh man <laughs> <laughs> which which makes for all kinds of fun conversations oh, which wow. is the I, entire reason i did it <laughs> i can only imagine bill are you are you going to be at uh at tack in colorado this year yeah, I uh, assuming it's on. I'm gonna have a booth at the TAC in Colorado. So oh, I'll have nice. a booth, booth there. Yeah, and cool. I'll be at the. I'm also be at the South Dakota TAC, just shooting it. Yeah. Cool, cool. Well, I will. I'm. I just talked to the wife like two hours ago, and I think we're gonna go to the Colorado one. So hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to be able to see you there. So you've oh, got. Cool. You we've talked about the solid, the vented, and the buff series, but you just released a newer one. I think at ATA, I believe. 
uh, um, or, or maybe not at ATA, but during ATA uh, for your wide series, uh, which is a different, a bit of a different blade profile. Uh, what's, what's going on with that, that broadhead? Yeah. So I've had people bugging me for years. Um, it's a lot of the whitetail guys wanting a wider cut and, and I sound like a broken record telling them you don't, you don't need a wider, you don't need a wider cut. Mm-hmm. You need a, a pass, complete pass through two holes, um, a sharp broadhead that's cutting all the way through, you know, it's, this is a, our standard heads, 1.8 inches of total cut with that cross cut, man, the last eight white tails I shot died in sight, you know, just zip, you know, don't worry about it. And they're all like, well, I got, I got like leftover energy. I want a bigger hole and <laughs> I want to um, use it all up. I want to use right. it all up on that whitetail. And, <laughs> you know, I, I fought it for, <laughs> I fought it for a while. And then I, I started designing it. I actually spent, a, I actually took on and off for almost, you know, a year and a half, two years designing it. I didn't want to give up anything that I had. I didn't want to give up durability. I didn't want to give up flight. I didn't want to give up penetrations, at least not very much, but I could also see their point a little bit like, okay, I'm in a controlled situation. I'm hunting whitetail. I'm going to have a 20, 30 yard shot. It's not that big a bone animal. Um, or I'm shooting bears. I'm shooting a bear. It's over bait. It's 25 yard shot. Um, they're not thick skinned. You know, why not give them a little bit bigger cut? Um, so, you know, I prototyped it. I placed them with, um, a dozen or so guys we shot. I think about 40 whitetails with them and we had some we had double shoulder blade pass throughs we had um a spine complete pass through downward um we had some we had some tough shots in there you know yeah. i mean a hard, spine hard bone be type one of the shots. hardest shots on a whitetail for sure yeah and i just did that same shot on a on a hog in texas and I can tell you, I can tell you they're way tougher than whitetail. And it was, a, it was, it was head well, on. Their spines are, are tough. Yeah. There's some it big cr- bones there. Yeah. And the way I shot this thing, his, um, he was, he was head on, his head was down and I was up above him on kind of a, a hill. He was kind of down below in this low spot and I draw back and he's coming in and he stops and he's alert. And the guy with me, Blake says, kill him if you can. And, uh, cause he, I mean, he knew that like the jig was up, something was happening <laughs> there. I was at full draw and I thought, well, I got, I can, I, and with his head down, I think I can maybe put it through his spine between his shoulder blades. So that's the shot I took, but you know, at the angle it hit him, it was like, you know, 30 degrees off horizontal or something like that, maybe 40. So it, all these little ribs that stick up off the top of the spine, um, yep. I don't know what, I don't know what they call them, but these that, little that's, that spinal process in the neck yeah. has like fingers coming off of it. Yeah. So I can send you, even. I can send you the photo, what it looks like afterwards, but it cut, it cut four of those in half. So it's like cutting through four ribs, um, on edge almost <laughs> before it yeah. got to the spot, before it got to the spine. And that spine was, Oh, at that angle was four or five inches, a pretty heavy bone. It had to go through. Um, and it went through all that and the arrow stopped somewhere back in the pelvis area. So it mm-hmm. went through all, went through all that. And then it went through some vitals and it, it dropped that hog and, uh, he was dead in second. So it, you know, it hit, um, you know, 
Um, I guess it was top of lungs kind of thing and liver, all that. So anyway, with, with, I made that shot and then I made a, a broadside shot on a bore at 40 yards, a double shoulder blade pass through with, um, you know, they have those shields. So they have all that cartilage on the outside too. Yeah. And I made it through both of those and their hide. And the hide on that hog is like, as I rip up, as I rip up like the spine to do like a, um, like a gutless method where I'm just going to skin them from the spine down. Um, mm-hmm. that skin is like cutting through a sheet of plastic. It's stiff. It's tough. It's oh, yeah. tough. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's a much harder test I think than a whitetail, but after those, Oh, agreed. After, most after those shots yeah. in my, in my force testing, man, I'm, I'm feeling really good about the white head. Um, anyway, yeah, we did launch nice. it in January. All the whitetail hunters were excited, you know, bigger, um, you know, more blood yeah. on the ground, more blood on the ground, bigger blood trails, the things that um, ex- excite guys, lots of blood. So <laughs> <laughs> it, Roll, it, it's funny the red carpet. I, I had uh, a very similar shot on a pig this last summer, except that I was underneath. <laughs> That's I, I was down okay. and I was looking up this this hill and there was like a, a rock bluff behind him and I came in like low middle of his neck he had his head turned kind of away from me right through all of that spinal process and then exited out the top of the back hip nice and that's when we tore that thing apart, like you were saying, like it's that that spinal process on on those pigs. This was a, a 256 pound Russian. Um, like it's impressive. It's impressive how much bone is is in that area. Like, yeah, I didn't um, you know, I haven't I haven't shot many pigs prior to this. Uh, I shot one last year and then I, I shot, um, six on that hunt. Um, so I've got, yeah, if you, you, get any, you guys need any pork, let me know. You can swing by the house. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're still smoking the stuff I got from, from, uh, last, what was that? July. That's I, I got yeah, two it was July. Yeah, it was July. It's like, I got a 308 pound and a 256. And, uh, that's, we just, uh, smoked up some some one inch pork chops yesterday yeah one other i did one other uh one other test on the hog which was from this recent force testing i did i knew that i could i should be able to push my broadhead through like hide and meat um with about 10 i think 11 pounds of force um yeah so christmas this is a test you guys can can do yourself on like shoot a shoot an animal once it's dead I did it on a, I did it on this live boar after shooting through the two shoulder blades. Um, I went right up there and it was like kicking, trying to get up, even though I know it was going to die in a second. <laughs> I just grabbed, I grabbed a broadhead out of my quiver with the whitehead and I jammed it into the right behind the leg into the heart and it actually cut through a, a rib. And um, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was it was bloody. In hindsight, in hindsight, maybe not the best thing to do, but but yeah, it it it, it, it shortened it right. It. It yeah. was a quick kill, and it was probably safer than yeah. trying to shoot it at shoot it two feet away with my bow. Um, yeah, yeah, oh, probably. I would, but I would the, so. the, the yeah. funny thing is, Matt had mentioned earlier that uh, 
the last time that we were in Texas, we ended up running dogs and, and, uh, using knives for pigs and (laughs) our, our one buddy could attest to needing the the right blade mm-hmm. <laughs> that's he had this like giant bowie knife and huge. struggled to to put this thing through the rib cage <laughs> so the guys <clears throat> the guys just stand there going stick them gotta push it in <laughs> so <clears throat> exp- explain this to me a little bit does like the dog have a hold of the pig when you do that or, or what? Yeah. So it's, it's a pack of dogs. Okay. Right. It, it's kind of like, uh, you know, running bears or cougars or um, the dogs are going to go start looking around. If a dog picks up a trail, it's going to bay. The rest of the dogs will crash on the bang dog and chase and corner the target. And so once they start crashing, then as the hunter and the guide, you're trying to get the the truck in position. Then you're jumping out and sprinting through the Texas bush to get to them in pitch black in the pitch black. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, then once you get there, the guides got to, you know, potentially try and get, dogs out of the way so that you can step in and knife the pig which i mean it was a super quick like for people that are concerned like once the knife went in it was literally i don't five know seconds. 10 5 seconds yeah it was before long. it was done so i mean it was very quick yeah um, but the dog the dog will normally like grab it like the the pack dogs because uh, there's different breeds that are meant for different parts of this like whole operation, and there yeah. are dogs they'll grab like grab the pig by the ears and like just pin it down to where it can't move, and then another dog will grab its foot, and uh, so the pig is pretty immobile by the time you get up there. Uh, yeah. So honestly, it, it, it I mean, allevi- alleviates the danger a little bit. <laughs> it, it's right. the way that do- those dogs work. Oh, incredible! Is They're incredible! Incredible! Yeah, like that was my first real exposure to to using dogs in that manner since then I, i've been exposed a bit to to using dogs for bears and some other things but like it it's honestly it the guys that do that are skilled oh yeah like it's it's cool it, it's a really cool from thing. a training aspect those dogs are unbelievable yeah i i like uh I like dog. My grandfather was a um, a bird a dog trainer, and he bird hunted. And I, yeah. I've done I've done it my whole life too. I've got drothars, so I um I train them and take them through the German test program. So that includes like a blood tracking and hair tracking mm-hmm. and stuff and stuff like that. That's I generally awesome. use them. I generally use them for um, blood tracking and then also um in bird hunting are the like upland bird hunting are the two main things I use them for. But I know there are people yeah. that use use drothars. You know they're German. Um, hunting breed and there are guys that use them for hog hunting in like australia and places like that so um, gotcha. yeah i think Whoa. it's i i think it's pretty i mean i do really enjoy training a dog and then taking a dog you've trained and hunting with it it's it's a it's a special experience for sure 
Yeah, man, I'd be oh, so but, worried about the dog getting hurt. I'd be that. I'd be more worried about that than anything else. And even he even did that. He yelled at Greg. He was like, "Don't stick the dog." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, so yeah. we've we've touched on we basically touched on all the broadheads that you make minus the crossbow one. But what, what's I, I guess like a real elevator pitch kind of there we don't have a ton of crossbow hunters but what's happening with that broadhead yeah um and i pro- i don't know if i said it but the wide the wide head is just 30 percent wider so it's got a okay inch and three eighths wide main blade with that same three to quarter inch bleeder so it can give you gotcha a two and two and one eighth inch total cut and the uh and so yeah um if if you're shooting a mechanical because you just want a bigger cut i can i can tell you our white head is a much better option if you're going to hit bone or, or anything like that. Cause you yep. know, my, so I could tell you my setup. I, I normally shooting a 70 pound bow. Well, for my 70 pound bows, I have 500 grain arrows. Typically this on the hog hunt, I was shooting a 75 pound bow with a 530 grain arrow um, with about, uh, I had 175 up front. So I've got the 25 grain broad hit or 125 grain broadhead, but I've got a 25 grain, uh, impact collar and our mm-hmm. 25 grain hardened steel hit insert. And that's a hardened steel right. impact collar. So anyways, Oh yeah. With, I, I with do that want to setup, touch on that. Yeah. So, um, anyway, that's our wide series. And then our, um, our crossbow series, all that is, and I don't, I mean, to be honest with you, I don't even think it maybe is that necessary, but what it is, is I just took our V series and change the ferrule so it flares yep. out a little flares out a little bit bigger because crossbow bolts are, are bigger di- larger diameter yeah um and my standard ferrule is there's is it a ten thousandths per side step up to that to normal crossbow bolt a lot of guys just use our standard broadheads with crossbow bolts and they sure, work fine yeah. they work fine and i've tested them and i'm happy with it too but it, there is, um, and I think Ashby said it as well. If your if your ferrule is at least five percent bigger than your arrow, you can get a little bit better penetration. So um, yeah, so that's why I did it. That's what the crossbow gotcha. is. It's just a just a different ferrule. It offered gotcha. our V series. Our V series right now. Um, I'll probably extend that to some heavier weights once people start asking for it. But that's all that is. Sure, sure, yeah. So you you touched there for a second, and before we hop into uh, the physics of, of, of arrow penetration, you mentioned your, your hit, uh, uh, your, uh, iron will hit. It's different than, than your standard, uh, hit system with your impact collars. What, uh, can you explain to people exactly what's going on there and that the whole insert system that you're using? Yeah, I did a lot of, um, I did a lot of impact testing over the years. So I broke my share of arrows and, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One one thing, and you know, when I started wanting to shoot further distance, um, that's when I I went from like a standard to a small diameter, like a two hundred four ID, um, or what Easton would call their five millimeter. And I also, right. uh, so I kind of like the small versus the standard, and but, and so then you know you're forced with, um, you know, a hit insert or some kind of outsert. And I liked, uh, the thing I liked about the hit insert was, I mean, I'm always, I was impact testing and then I'm seeing, does the broadhead still spin true? Has it been damaged at all? So I like that, uh, with the hit system, the shank of the broadhead 
um, which is like the datum surface on that broadhead, that cylinder that's right, you know, right next to the threads. We 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 turn it on a, a Swiss CNC machine. To, it's man, the rest of the ferrule is concentric to that diameter to ten thousandths of an inch. So right. if that if that is aligned right to the ID of the arrow, and the arrow is you know a good arrow that's has good straightness, it's pretty much guaranteed it's going to spin true. And so part yep. of it, I was I was um, I was kind of sick of dealing with components that were making things not spin true. Um, so for that reason, I like the hit insert. It's just that on hard impacts, I was sometimes breaking out the sides of it. And I could also deform the aluminum threads or brass threads down in there. They're both fairly soft. So I started making these hardened steel collars that were an inch long over the outside just for my own impact testing. And um, people started seeing them and my friends wanted me to make them some. People would see it in a picture and ask if they could get it. And um, I didn't actually want to come out with them for sale. Um, but I thought about it. And the other thing is uh, I didn't like that. the I wanted to make higher strength hits. And, you know, Easton had the patent on it. And I contacted them and asked, started working with their engineers, asked if I could license that patent. And, you know, that takes a while in a big, to work with a big company to do that. But they oh, were yeah. uh, really good guys to work with. They, <laughs> they decided that, um, yeah, it would be a good thing working you know, um, you know, I told them all I'm trying to do is like extend it to that niche of guys that want the higher strength, um, you know, the ultimate strength, um, arrows, broadheads, things like that. And yeah, they were cool with it. They licensed the technology to me so I could make them out of, um, initially just hardened steel. And then I, um, hardened steel in 25, 50, 75 and a hundred grain, um, lengths or weights. And then the 25 grain hardened steel collar initially and then i had a lot of guys um wanting to add that collar but they were you know they'd be underspined and and you know there's always these guys that don't want to change the arrow they've been shooting forever and stuff so anyway that titanium <laughs> that's, the titanium that's the tough collar. part that's the tough part is, is getting those guys to go up a spine if they need to oh yeah or change from a 100 grand head to a 125 it's like oh yeah yeah they, yeah. they, yeah. they, they can't they can't envision doing that. I'm like, guy, it's five. It's a five percent. It's twenty five grains on a five hundred. It's a five percent change. It's, and I promise you, got it, you, you got it in better. your head. You got it in your head. You got to shoot a hundred. It's it's not true. <laughs> but um, I mean, our hundred grain heads are fine. I just don't see the hang up for people um, to just go a little higher. But anyways, we offer the ten, the titanium impact collar in ten. It's only ten grains. It's 0.7 inches long. So that was kind of my minimal length to overlap the hit insert and provide um, a good strength improvement there. And then uh, you can get a tight, we make a titanium hit now that's just 15 grains. So you can do it for only 25 grains wow. up front. Um, wow. So yeah, our full system of the impact collar with the hit insert, you can do it from a 25 grain total up to 125 grain, or you can be like a couple guys and like, put a couple two a couple hundred grains in there and you know do like 225 or, or whatever you want well, yeah so that's a way to add weight without doing it at the broadhead i guess yeah yeah absolutely and well i mean just the amount of the gain that you get in structural integrity there is second to none and that's uh, i don't i don't have an issue with the hit system like theoretically but it, it, you need to protect the end of that shaft 
uh, which is why I think that that you yeah. know uh, the impact a, collar becomes so important, system. so important. Yeah, without a sleeve yep. system, there's definitely some concerns there. But when you once you reinforce it, it's honestly pretty darn tough, especially you know if you start playing with the materials like you did. Yeah, I think if you once you reinforce it with hardened steel, and so another thing that um, I mean, this is my opinion on it as I've as I've tested different ones is that there's some outsert systems that have a lot more steel there. There's a lot thicker, um, but there's a bit of a disconnect there. If you have like something that's heavy and strong steel, it's an inch long sticking out in front of your arrow, and then a you've got leverage. You've got a pretty, I mean, come on, carbon arrows are pretty weak compared to that steel out front. Oh and yeah, now you, and It'll now you got more of a, does. and you got more of a lever arm now when you got something yep. that broadheads mounted yep. an inch out, and yep. I I I actually I think you're better off from my testing, where you have kind of more like a laminated system where you've got a hardened steel hit, then carbon fiber, then hardened steel on top of it, you know e- epoxy all that. Um, our, our, you can slip our collars on, or you can epoxy them to even add more strength, but once when that's all kind of built into the arrow, I think it's actually a lot less likely to bend anything because you can't really bend those steel sure. parts. Yeah. Those steel yeah. parts don't bend very easy at all. And for them to bend um, in, in that carbon can take some flex without bending. So it's a pretty, it's a, it's a pretty solid system really. Um, yeah, I do. A, I've done a ton of impact testing with it and, you know, Snyder was telling me, I went down to Kefaro this morning to pick up a pack and he told me that he's been shooting them in a brick walls for, um, for fun, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, and he said that, um, well, in concrete, and he said that he, he hasn't been able to bend our component system and he's comparing it to other component systems out there that are pretty good ones too. So it's been, it's been pretty successful. Yeah. Well, yeah. And f- from a leverage standpoint, a lot of people don't realize like, if you've got an you've got an outsert, right? It's say it's full stainless internal post with a sleeve, but you've got three quarters of an inch of material in front of the carbon, right? You still have say a quarter inch of carbon coverage. Like yep. That material in front of the carbon is now a much longer lever that your broadhead length is now going to be adding on to. And it's significant. If you go from, like, say with the hit system, you're pretty much at the carbon, right? You've got the, the little bit, the front of that collar but very insignificant comparatively speaking. And then you compare that to something with a half inch or three quarters of an inch and then apply the same forces. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. It's, um, you know, the bending, the, the stress in a beam is uh, what MC over I it's a, the bending moment yeah. you put on there. And that, so that bending moment is, that force times the length at which it's applied from that point of stress. 
So if that yep. point of stress, that's why I want, that's why I actually want the broadhead back inside that carbon, you know? So if there's a, mm-hmm. if there's a, if there's a high force, say in the middle of that broadhead, um, it's say it's, say it's out just a, a half inch from the end of the carbon. That's a pretty short lever arm. Um, now if you've yep. got a, if you've got a, um, an outsert that's where the broadhead's completely in that outsert, well, that's at least a, it's, it's probably a minimal, um, look at the ATA spec. It's probably a minimal 800 or 850, if not an inch in front of the carbon. Yeah. And now you add, now mm-hmm. you add the half inch or inch, you know, that it's applied out on the broadhead. Let's just say a half inch. Um, now you're at an inch and a half lever arm instead of a half inch. So you just tripled the stress yep. on the carbon right there. Um, yep. So that's why exponential. I, that's what people don't understand. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's, a, I have a lot of conversations yeah. with with my customers about this because I, I deal with the ethics system a lot. And like I'll have people that are like, well, the the aluminum, you know, the aluminum post only goes to a hundred and you know ten grains, hundred and fifteen grains. I want one twenty-five. If I trim the stainless all the way to the minimum setting, then I'll get that. I'm like, you're better off saving the 15 grains and having an additional inch and a half of, of support than yep. removing all of that. Like yep. sacrifice the 10 grains. You need that support because if you cut all that internal post out, now all you have is half inch to three quarters of an inch of a, of a lever in front of carbon with no support. That yeah, leverage yep. is just going to blow blow out the shaft. And there's a few outserts out there that have very little amount of carbon um, mm-hmm. in them. And yeah, those are, I mean, they're, they're junk. People, um, I hear you that all the time. You can say it. They come from victory. <laughs> we know. I'm, I'm not gonna say. I'm not gonna. I don't name names. It's okay. No, it's not. It's not one company. Y'all. It's yeah. not. Yeah. The, yeah. There are a couple of them. It's, yeah. It's not yeah. one company. It's it's been well, done for, yeah, and, for years. And, and all these all these aero manufacturers, like components, is a secondary thought to them, right? Like they're they're in the business of selling carbon. They're not in the business of selling components. And and I I get it to an extent, but man, the the component and the insert the insert system. Change. Oh, I completely agree. I completely agree. But I mean, they, they won't because they the the lion's share of the market are guys that will never touch second you know secondary components. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but yeah, let me, but let that, me that, uh, that leaves a market. I mean, let, let me um, give a little bit of perspective on that. I mean, being in the industry um, is that the components you get with arrows are are kind of free. Um, and so they don't want to put a lot of money into them. I mean, it's because some guys yeah. are some guys aren't going to use them anyway. Um, I mean, that that's kind of what I think is that these the companies um, they're making money on their on their shafts. Um, the components, I mean, they really want to make them as low cost as possible, and you can see that from the materials that are used. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, and I, I'm not going to name any names, but. I look at the materials used on some of the components and not only did they pick say aluminum, they picked the lowest, cheapest grade of aluminum. And, Oh yeah. yeah. And, and not only, <laughs> and not only did they do that, they're not making it on a Swiss machine very accurately. They're making it on a, 
a, a machine that's 70 years old that can only hold 3,000 tolerance. Um, so a lot of the components you get free with arrows are are worth what you paid for them. I think. Um, yeah. You know, and, and not all. I mean, there's some. Some are definitely better than worse. And I mean, I'm. I've got friends at these at these arrow companies, and you know, so, sorry guys. I just, I mean, that's my, my opinion. I mean, they're okay. They're great for target. And that's what a lot of the focus is on arrow sales. That's yeah. another, and that's another thing too, is that why would they sell a super strong high cost um, insert or outsert or whatever that doesn't matter for shooting foam? It doesn't matter right. for shooting targets. Yep. Why should they add that? Why should they add that cost across the board to, to make oh, a, exactly. couple, a couple of extreme hunters happy? Um, and, and raise the price for everybody. So, I mean, I totally understand why they're doing it. But again, that's why I think that if you're really going for the ultimate strength and setup, um, yeah, you want you you don't want the broadhead you're going to get at Walmart, and you don't want the components you get free with arrows. I mean, yeah, well, so I would, and I would agree there. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, this is no different than any other market, right? If if you want to build an off-road rig, you're not running factory, right? You're buying something and you're building what fits the functionality that you need. If you want the best long-range rifle, there are great options. You're probably going to be going out and buying some extra components, right? It's the same thing here. The companies right. are, are, are fitting the, the mass mold and going, we know that they're going to go somewhere else anyway, you know? Right. Some and they, companies and, and to be are honest, offering. Um, yeah. And I've, I've had the conversation with them. Like, why don't you guys just do, do this and make it better or stronger? And they're like, like ah, we uh, don't need to, it, you yeah. know, you're, you're talking about the, the top 5% of people, you know, we're yeah. not the volume's not there for us to um, go after that kind of market. I built yeah. more yep. dozens of, well, I don't know if I built more than Rob, but I've built more dozens of arrows than I care to remember. And yeah, most of those people didn't care what went in them. They're like, Oh, did that come yep. with it? Okay. Yeah. Well, a lot <clears> of people, you tell them like, Oh, like you're going to, you're going to buy these arrows and then you're going to spend a little extra money on these different components. And they'd, and they just lose their mind. It's or like, they're well, right. As soon as you say that, their eyes glaze over because they have no idea what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, so many people, like we've mentioned, you know, a dozen times, probably more so far since we've started this podcast, you know, the, the, they buy the bow, they buy the site, they buy the thousand dollars worth of camo. And then the last thing that they think about buying is is arrows and broadheads and it's you know, what's the cheapest mm, arrow and broadhead yeah, you have yeah, i'm I'm, can't out, be, I'm out of money yeah it can't be can't be bothered to think of because I, mean, I mean because you're you're the part that does the killing is is three main components right it's the arrow it's the it, or it's well three main parts it's the yeah. arrow it's the component that holds the broadhead and it's the broadhead and if any of them fail then you know that's it and so many people all will even like what I would consider quote unquote serious hunters only think about the arrow. They don't think about what they're putting on the end and they don't think about what's holding the broad head on there. And it just baffles me. Blows my yeah. Mind. There's, I agree. There's a lot of guys. I mean, some guys are catching on to the higher mass thing, but then they're saying, Oh, I shoot 70 or 80 pounds. I got all this mass. I can, I can use this um, mechanical or 
or whatever. And then I, I'm yeah. looking at it and say, <laughs> well, do you, do you realize with your amount of, you know, with your higher poundage bow and all that more mass, how much yep. more, how much more force is getting transferred through that broadhead? And then you just increase your aluminum. rate of failure. <laughs> yeah. And, and this aluminum ferrule and these super thin two inch wide blades, how, <laughs> how much easier they're going to break with all that much more force and energy there. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's nuts. One thing, I'll, one thing I'll add too about companies and this is, this drove me nuts developing products at um, companies over the years is that I would, I would come up with a way to improve performance and I test it, prove it in the lab. I'm like, Hey, we got to do this. We can boost, we can, boost performance here. Um, and I did you know, a lot of component designs and mechanism designs, things like that, um, you know, for, with different requirements and things, but often sure. I'd have to justify, okay, but can we sell it for more money? Will we <laughs> yep. make more, will we make more money by implementing this? I'm like, uh, you know, that's kind of hard to quantify, but don't we want to make the best product we can here? And I'd have that battle and sometimes I'd lose. They're like, yeah. we can't raise the price. It costs more <laughs> to make it better. Yeah. We're not going to do it. That's the tough thing. It's like the government. Wait. It's not always the best thing that wins. It's the cheapest. Yeah. And that, and that's one thing. Like when, um, when I met Eric up in the mountains and then a couple years later, he wanted to do a, we wanted to launch the company. We co-founded the company. One, one thing I made him promise is that, that, Hey, I'm not going to cheapen this up to make money um you know it's not and our margins were stupid low to start with and, and part of it was because we didn't realize there was like 11 percent um oh the excise tax, on, tax? yeah excise tax <laughs> yeah. on broadheads paid by the Oops. manufacturer on <laughs> yeah. the selling oh, price no. oh, um, yeah. so I, so i'm like are you quick, kidding me i'm to, paying a yeah. are you can, can, i gotta pay 11 percent on the selling price <laughs> yep. i don't the company doesn't have to make any money this year and it didn't um and but i'm sell i'm sending the government checks every quarter for um this excise tax and i'm calling them i'm like what is this and then i realized i mean i had heard of it i just didn't realize i was the guy <laughs> that was gonna pay it it was yeah. i mean it's it's for a great cause right it's for it's for wildlife. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I didn't. So, you know, that cut into our already low margins and, and that, that was a struggle. And, you know, it's part of the reason my partner, partner left is, uh, I, I was not going to compromise. We, I know how to make things cheaper. I can make, a, I can make a 303 stainless ferrule for a, a, maybe a third or a fifth the cost that I can, our current ferrules. Um, I knew ways I could make it cheaper. I just didn't want to do it. I'm like, no, I could just go buy that out there now. I want to make exactly the best or nothing. And so, yeah, I mean, and, then you know, you have to contend with like the thought in the back of your mind that you know it's not right. Like the whole reason yeah, I started this was to make I'm, it right. I'm not in this to to cash out, make some money quick, and 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 move on. I'm I'm in this. I mean, I I've had three offers to buy the company already, and I've passed them up. I haven't even like. Ask for like what's your what's your price? Please, um, please don't sell for like a while longer. I'm not because uh, <laughs> then it'll. I mean, let's be honest. All those oh, shortcuts you're not taking now, they'll be taken. I yep. could I could make more money doing the side jobs I was doing while I was you know doing this company. So it's that 
It's yeah. not about it's not about money to me. It's That's... about I I'm excited to work every day. I like what I'm doing. Um, yeah. And yeah. And if it can pay the bills, and I mean, I've already, I mean, I worked as an engineer for 25 years. I've got a 35 acre place. I got a house I like. I can hike in the mountains from here. Um, and, you know, um, I got, if I wanted to be rich, I wouldn't have had four kids because they're draining me as much <laughs> as they can. But, um, you know, yep. it's, it's not, um, it's not about the money and, and it might sound cliche, but it's, uh, it's about being passionate about I wanted, what I want to do, I think. So, 